0: It is, uh, it's, a, it's a delight to be here and be able to share God's word with you. I'm uh, grateful uh, for the opportunity to do that. And uh, I know that as long as Eli is here uh, keeping things running, then, then his dad can go off to the Longview campus and things are still going to run smoothly uh, at this campus. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Genesis. And Genesis chapter 5 is where we're going to be uh, together this morning. If you know Pastor Gio at all, you know that he is the king of obscure East Texas facts. Uh, I have enjoyed learning all kinds of facts about Marshall and East Texas in general from Pastor Gio. He'll share these things and I don't know where he finds some of these, but I was very proud of myself because I found an obscure East Texas fact without Gio's help the other day. Uh, I learned something the other day about Gregg County Airport. You may already know this, but maybe you don't, that uh, Gregg County Airport has one of the longest runways in the nation. How many of you knew that? Any, okay, half of well, three of you. All right. In fact, it was the first civilian airport in Texas and in the southwest to have a 10,000-foot-long runway. And I had no idea, but he, that, that's true of Gregg County Airport. And the reason that they built it that way is they wanted it to be able to be an alternate landing site for uh, the space shuttle, if needed, if the space shuttle, when it was coming back, if it needed to, to divert, they wanted to be able to take it here at Gregg County. They also wanted to be able to take uh, planes like Air Force One if needed and other planes. And so if, if they wanted to, to be able to, to carry something that was heavy, something that was weighty, something that was meaningful, they had to build the runway different. Now, as we think about Genesis chapter 5, I want you to keep in that mind, that in your mind, because if you want your life to be able to handle the weighty things, the heavy things, the meaningful things, you have to build your life different as well. There are two ways you can build your life. You can build your life according to the way of the world, or you can build your life differently. The Bible says in the book of Romans that you can have a life that conforms to the world, or a life that is transformed into the image of Jesus. It's something that's built differently so that it can handle different kinds of things. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 5. We see the difference between a life lived for God and a life lived away from God. Now, if you've read ahead, then you know that Genesis chapter 5 is uh, some exciting literature. It is a genealogy. And I know that that's just, you know, when you open your Bible, you love to flip to those genealogies and read all of the begats. All right, let's be honest. That's not our favorite kind of literature. In fact, it's very easy to come to a genealogy, a family tree in the Bible and start to read so-and-so, begat so-and-so. And And if we're honest, sometimes it's easy to kind of just turn the page or two and skip over that because we just don't really see the relevance uh, of a genealogy or a family tree to our life today. But don't do that. Uh, It's a mistake to just pass it over because there's some really good stuff in the genealogy. And I was thinking about this as I was driving over here. The last time I was here preaching, I had another obscure passage of Scripture, the last part of the book of Colossians. And here I am again with another kind of obscure passage of Scripture. And so, uh, but this is the the text that we're in today. And here's the thing. Uh, The book of uh, 1 Timothy says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. And that statement's either true or it's not. But if all scripture is inspired and is profitable, then that means even in a genealogy, a family tree, there's something here for us. And so I hope that you will, will dial in with me this morning because the genealogies are in your Bible for a reason. There's actually a lot to glean from them. Here's a reading tip, okay? When you come to a genealogy in your Bible, you need to pay attention to several things. You need to pay attention to what's the same to what's different, to what's unusual, and to what's surprising, okay? Pay attention to what's the same, what's different, what's unusual, and what's surprising. If you pay attention to the details of a genealogy, there's a lot to learn there. For instance, in Jesus' genealogy, which is how the New Testament opens up, the first chapter of Matthew begins with the family tree of Jesus, you'll learn that there are a lot of surprising characters in the family tree of Jesus, which teaches us something about the kind of people that Jesus likes to use. For instance, it teaches us something about God's power to redeem any story. It teaches us something about how God is sovereign and can work through uh, even human failure and flawed human stories and messy human families. Aren't you thankful that God can work through messy human families? Can I get a witness? Isn't that good good news this morning? You've been with some of those messy human families this week, haven't you, with Thanksgiving? God can even work through that, and you see that in Jesus' family tree. Jesus didn't have sort of a pristine family background. It's a little sketchy. There are some weird uncles in there, and yet God used all of those people as part of his redemptive plan. Well, the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 also serves an important purpose, and there's actually two main reasons for this particular genealogy. The first is that it, it provides essentially a link between Adam and his family and what's the next major story in the text, Noah and his family. This genealogy is a bridge, if you will, between the events of Genesis 1 through 4, which is about Adam and his family, and the events of Genesis 6 through 9, which is going to be about Noah and his family. This is kind of a literary bridge between those two. But the other purpose of Genesis chapter 5 is to show the consequences of the events of Genesis 1 through 3, namely the sinfulness of humankind. Humankind. Genesis three and four, where we've been over these last few weeks, has shown the depravity of the human race, how sinful Adam and Eve have been, and then their descendants, particularly Cain, and then his family, seen in, in uh, you know uh, this murderous family tree with people like Lamech that you saw probably last Sunday, who's this you know uh, he marries multiple wives and he kills children and writes songs about it to brag, and you see all of this worsening depravity in Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 4, when you get to chapter 5, you see the result or the consequences of that sin. And the consequences of that sin is death. So in Genesis chapter 5, the main theme of the chapter is death. Aren't you excited to be at church today to come hear a sermon about death? That is the main theme. You're going to see the, ref- the phrase, and he died, repeated again and again and again in this chapter. It's, it's like a funeral dirge of death. And yet, right in the middle of that funeral dirge, we see a contrast, a different way of living, a different kind of life that has a different result than death. Abraham Curavilla, who was on the Longview campus a couple of weeks ago, calls Genesis 5 a kind of theological commentary on life. It's intended to prod you to think about your life. And so I want you to keep that that in mind. I'm going to read through the text, and then we're just going to come back and walk through, and I want to point out three or four or five or ten things about it, okay? We'll see how much we can get to this morning. Genesis chapter 5, beginning of verse 1, it says, this is the document containing... The genealogy or the family records of Adam. On the day that he, God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and when they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness according to his image and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So, Adam's life lasted 930 years, then he died. Now, I want you to do, do something. This will be a little active reading. It'll help you to stay engaged with the text. Every time you see that phrase, and he died or then he died, I want you to say that out loud with me together. Okay? Let's look at verse 6. Seth was 105 years old when he fathered Enosh, and Seth lived 807 years after he fathered Enosh, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So, Seth's life lasted 912 years. You ready? Then he died. Enosh was 90 years old when he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived 815 years after he fathered Kenan, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Enosh's life lasted 905 years, then he died. Kenan was 70 years old when he fathered Mahalalel. That's a fun one to say five times fast. Kenan lived 840 years after he fathered Mahalalel. Mahalalel, is that right? Am I getting anywhere close to that? So Kenan's life lasted 910 years, then he died. Mahalalel was 65 years old when he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived 830 years after he fathered Jared, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Mahalalel's life lasted 895 years, then he died. Jared was 162 years old when he fathered Enoch. Jared lived 800 years after he fathered Enoch, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Jared's life lasted 962 years, then he died. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah, and after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters, and so Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. Methuselah was 187 years old when he fathered Lamech. Now, you'll remember there's another Lamech in Genesis chapter 4. This is a different Lamech, okay, in Genesis chapter 5. And he fathered uh, other sons and daughters, and so Methuselah's life lasted 969 years. Then he died. still with me? Verse 28, Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son, and he named him Noah, saying, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And Lamech lived 595 years after he fathered Noah and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Lamech's life lasted 777 years, then he died. Noah was 500 years old and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, so what are we gonna do with this? Well, I wanna just point out three or four things that we are reminded of uh, in this genealogy. The first uh, thing that we are reminded of in Genesis chapter 5 it's interesting how the genealogy begins. The author goes all the way back to the, to the life of Adam. And I think that, that Genesis five, 5 actually reminds us of our original purpose as humans. It reminds us of the purpose of a life lived for God. Did you notice? The, the language should be familiar to you in verses one and two that God created man. He made him in his likeness and his image and then he blessed them. You remember that from Genesis chapter 1. He creates Adam and Eve in the image of God, and then he blesses them. And so before we get into this very long genealogy that focuses a lot on death, the first thing the author wants you to do is to remember the purpose of life in the first place. Before you think about what happens later, he's trying to get you to think back to what God intended. God intended for us to bear his image to the world and to live a life of blessing. That's why you were created. You were made by God and you were made for God. Can we say that together? You were made by God and you were made for God. You were made in the image of God to represent him to the world. This is why Adam and Eve were created. This was their purpose. Now listen, you can live your life for all kinds of different purposes. You can live your life for the purpose of making all the money you can make. You can live your life for being as famous as you can be. You can live your life uh, to have a, a family that's enjoyable. You can live for all kinds of purposes, but the reason that God made you was for himself, amen? God has made you for himself to bear his image, to represent him well in this world and to live a life of blessing. It's like keys, which I have no keys in my pocket right now, but if I had a key, I could hold it up to you. A key... A car key can be used for a lot of different things, right? You can use a car key. I use my car keys from time to time to open up boxes. You can use it to open up letters. You can use it to clean your ears. You can use it to pick your nose. You can use a car key for all kinds of reasons, but there's one reason a car key was made. It has one purpose, and that's to turn on a car, right? Or to open a car door. God has made you for himself. You'll never live your purpose until you live for him, Amen? That's why Adam and Eve were created. So, the first thing that we're to be reminded of in Genesis 5, we're to think back to Genesis 1. God's original design for our lives was to to live for His glory, to image Him to the world, to live a life of blessing. That's what Adam and Eve were commissioned by God to do. Question How did they do with that? Not very well. Instead of living for God, with God at the center of their life, almost immediately, they put themselves at the center. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, instead of imaging God, turn from God. Instead of representing God, they rebel against God. Instead of putting God at the center of their life and live a life, living a life of blessing, they choose to try to find blessing in other ways, and they put themselves at the center and so things break, things fracture in Genesis chapter 3, and then they intensify in Genesis chapter 4 with the story of Cain and Abel, and then the descendants of Cain, one of whom is highlighted for us in Genesis chapter 4, Lamech, who is the first bigamist. He has two wives, and he also is like his, his uh, ancestor Cain. He becomes a murderer. He kills a young man who just injures him. And then he writes a a poetic song bragging about what he has done. And so you see immediately in the story that instead of imaging God and representing God and living that life of blessing, Adam and Eve rebel against God. So there are consequences to that. And that's really the the main focus of Genesis chapter 5 is to show us the consequences of a life lived in rebellion to God. We're reminded of what our purpose was. Our purpose was to live for God. Adam and Eve didn't do that. There are consequences for that. And Genesis 5 just highlights for us the consequences when you live your life in rebellion to God. A lot of people think that they can live their life in rebellion with absolutely no consequence whatsoever. That's the lie that we're told, that I can do what I want and there will be no consequences. I can do what I want, I can live how I want, I can choose to do anything that I want and uh, there will be no Uh, No accountability, no consequence whatsoever. Genesis 5 shows us the consequences of sin. And the consequence of sin is death. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 that death entered the world through sin and all die because all sin, right? We learn in Romans 3.23 that the wages of sin is what? Can we say that together? The wages of sin is Death, right? That's the ultimate statistic. 10 out of 10 people die. And Genesis 5 is a confirmation that what God had said in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17 was true. That if Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the knowledge of uh, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that on the day that they ate of it, they would certainly die. Right, that was a promise that God made. Genesis 2:17, you will die. Genesis 5 is the confirmation that what God said is actually true. That they would certainly die if they rebelled. Genesis 5 shows us that the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 when he said, "You can eat from any tree and you will not die." Genesis 5 shows that the serpent was lying. If Genesis 5 has no other purpose, it serves the purpose of showing us that God is true and Satan is a liar, amen? That what God says will always be true and that what Satan says is never going to be fully true. And so sin results in death and like a funeral dirge, the repetition here eight times in one chapter of this phrase, and he died, it's actually only one word in Hebrew, we translate it with three words in English. And he died. And he died. And he died. It is like a bell ringing out again and again the consequences of a life lived in rebellion to God. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. We saw that in chapter four as well, didn't we? Cain's sin resulted in what? Death, right? Abel's death. Sin. Brings death. Listen to me. Sin brings death to every good thing God made. Sin brings death to every good thing that God has made. You see this, for instance, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebel against God, you see a picture when God curses the man. He says, You were taken from dust and to dust you shall return. You remember that phrase in Genesis chapter three? I formed you out of the dust, but when you die, you're gonna return to the dust. Do you see what's happening there? God, when he creates Adam, he takes dust, he breathes into it the breath of life, and Adam becomes a living being. But because of Adam's sin, man is going to return back to the dust from which he came. Sin is like an uncreation. It's like an undoing of what God has made. It's like a reversal of creation. Man comes from dust. That's what God does, but because of man's sin, man returns to the dust. It's a reversal of God's good work. And folks, that is always what sin does in our life. It destroys the good things that God intends for us. If you think about every sin, which I don't want you to dwell too much here, but I I want you to think about almost any sin you can imagine is the twisting of something that God originally intended to be good. For instance, think about human greed, right? Human greed is sinful. However, it's a twisting of something that God intended to be used for good. God intended you, for instance, to create wealth so that you can share wealth. God, God Wealth is not inherently evil. Wealth is actually a good. It's something that God intends for you to be able to create, to be able to enjoy, and to be able to use to bless other people. But when sin enters the picture, instead of becoming generous people, we become greedy people. Instead of becoming open-handed with our wealth, we become closed-fisted. Instead of using the blessings God has entrusted to us to bless the people around us, we use it just to enrich ourselves, right? And we become greedy people. Why? Because of sin. Sin distorts good gifts. Think about the gift of sex. Sex is a wonderful gift to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage. But when sin enters the picture, it twists something that God intended to be good and to be a blessing, and it becomes something that is distorted, and it becomes, for instance, immorality or adultery or some other kind of expression of sexual sin. It becomes, uh, it becomes essentially selfish because sin twists God's good gifts. We, we could talk about ambition, Ambition is not inherently evil. God wants you to live for his glory, to do everything with excellence and all things to the glory of God. Whether whether you own a business, God wants you to, to lead that business well for his glory. Be ambitious to do that for his glory. If you're a missionary, go reach a nation for God's glory. Be ambitious about that. If you have a family, then you raise that family in a godly way. Be ambitious for that. Ambition inherently is not evil, but when sin enters the picture, becomes distorted. And sin brings death to every good gift from God. Death is the consequence of a life lived in rebellion to God. And Genesis 5 is just that reminder that you need to hear that because of human sin, the result is death. Right in the middle of this genealogy that Rings out, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. There's one bright light right in the middle of the genealogy, and you probably picked up on it as we were reading through the text. The bright light is in verses 21 through 24. We see something different. And Genesis 5 shows us, yes, here was our original purpose. We were designed to image God, to represent him, to live a life of blessing, but we rebelled, and so we experienced the consequence of that rebellion with with death. But Genesis 5 also shows us that there is a different way to live. Genesis 5 reminds us of the importance of walking with God and how that can make a difference in your life. You you saw it in verses 21 through 24 with the life of Enoch. Did you see that? In verse 21, Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. 300 years, and fathered other sons and daughters, and so Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not there because God took him. Notice the absence of the phrase, and he died. We're not told that Enoch dies. We're told something different. This is intended to show us a contrast. I told you, when you read genealogies, you need to pay attention to what's the same. You also need to pay attention to what's different, what's surprising, what's unusual, Well, this is the example in Genesis 5 of what is different, what is surprising, and what is unusual, and it's intended to show you a contrast. It's interesting. If you count from Adam, the seventh descendant, through the line of Cain, you know who you get? Lamech in Genesis chapter 4, this murderous, bigamous boastful individual. But do you know if you count the seventh descendant from Adam through the line of Seth, you get Enoch, a man who walked with God. Can you have two different examples? Lamech, bigamous, brutal, boastful, and Enoch, a man who walked with God. Genesis 5 holds up the life of Enoch to show you that there is an alternative way to live. There is an alternative to a sinful life that leads to death. If you walk with God, you can have victory over death. Notice the phrase, it's repeated twice, verse 22 and verse 24, Enoch walked with God. Now, I want you to think about that phrase, walked with God, because it provides such a contrast, for instance, with Adam, It provides a contrast with Cain. Adam, you remember he walked with God as well, but then he rebelled against God and eventually he hid from God. Cain murdered and then he went away from the presence of the Lord, the text tells us. But Enoch, Enoch walked with God and it's mentioned twice, which is the text's way of like putting a red flashing light for you. Uh, when, When something's repeated in the text, especially in such a short span, it's the author's way of saying, hey, pay attention, this is important. It's, it's emphasizing that Enoch, in contrast to all of these other characters in the story, Enoch lived differently. Enoch built his life differently. Enoch walked with God. Now, what does it mean to walk with God? Thank you for asking that question. The phrase walked with God, it has the sense of of having a close personal relationship with God. It has a sense of a special intimacy with God. It has the sense that Enoch experienced and enjoyed a communion with God, that he had a life that was close with God. Notice the phrase walked with God. There's a commentator who says that that, that it's very important to notice that he says he walked with God instead of he walked before God. Sometimes in the Bible, it will talk about someone who walks before God. <clears throat> and this commentator says that to walk before God suggests almost that God is a spectator. God sees the person walk before him. The person is, as it were, parading before God. Sometimes individuals in the Bible are described that way, walking before God. But here... Enoch walks with God, which suggests something different. It it implies that God, too, is walking. Enoch is walking with God. They are walking together. It implies a companionship, a closeness, a proximity. Enoch is closely united with God, walking hand in hand. Enoch here is pictured as God's very intimate friend and they are always together. It's like the difference between when my kids were young, we had a Toys R Us uh, in Amarillo, Texas, when we lived there. How many of you remember Toys R Us? It was the greatest place on earth when I was a kid. And we had one before it closed down in Amarillo, and when our kids were younger, we would take those kids to Toys R Us, and when you take children into Toys R Us, uh, they, they immediately begin to, to multiply and scatter and grab things off the shelf and try to try on everything and play with every toy. And the best thing that you can do is put them on a leash when you walk in there so that they don't just rush off, right? They are, they are walking in front of you. Uh, and you're, you know, there's some distance there. There's a very diff- big difference between a child who's rushing ahead of you and you're just trying to keep up with them. And for instance, when Amy and I take a walk in our neighborhood, when we walked in our neighborhood, I'm not 10 feet in front of her or she's not 10 feet in front of me rushing ahead, we are side by side. A lot of times we'll be holding hands. We are walking with one another. There's a closeness, there's an intimacy. When we stroll through the park or we stroll through our neighborhood together, we're enjoying companionship, we're enjoying friendship. That's the language used to describe Enoch's life. That he was a close companion with God. That there was an intimacy and a communion that he shared in his relationship with God. That's implied as well by the phrase in verse 24. Notice the phrase, it says that God took him, he took him. That phrase is used uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament. For instance, when a man gets married, oftentimes it will talk about him taking a wife to himself. And so this suggests that, that God and Enoch have a different kind of relationship, the kind of relationship that has an intimacy of even, of even a marriage, that God has taken him to himself, that Enoch, who walked with, his, with God his whole life long, cannot be separated from God. God takes him to himself as his own. I wonder if that could be said of your life, could it be said of your life, if somebody, if somebody followed you around for a week, would they be able to say that, that Bob or Sue is God's very intimate friend? Would they say that about your life, that, that based on how you live your life, that you could be described as a very close friend of God, someone who walks in that kind of intimacy with God, someone who walks with God? Folks, I want that to describe my life. I want among all the things that I love and all the things I care about and all the things that I'm passionate about in my life, I want my relationship with God to be preeminent. I want if anybody says anything about Andrew Hebert, right? You you can say lots of things about me. You can say that I love my wife. You can say that I love my kids. You can say that I love the Astros. You can say that I love the Longhorns. You can say that I love my dogs. You can say that I love Blue Bell Ice Cream. All of those things are very true. But I want you to be able to say, I knew that he loved God. I knew that he walked with God. I knew that he shared an intimacy, a companionship, that he was God's very intimate friend. Folks, that's how Enoch lived his life, and it made a difference, amen? It made a difference, because Enoch's life ends in a very different way than all of these other people in Genesis chapter five. That's the big difference. It's the big contrast in Genesis chapter five. In each and every other case, so-and-so lived, they had children, They had this long lifespan. Some of them had a very long lifespan. Even Methuselah, the longest person to ever live. But even if you live a very long time, and even if you have many, many children and many, many descendants, and even if your life is meaningful in so many other ways, eventually this is going to be said of you. And he died. And she died. That's what's spoken about every other individual but with Enoch. He walked with God, and then the text tells us he was not there, for God took him. What does it mean for him to not be there? Well, actually, if you read the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, it gives us a commentary on the life of Enoch, and this is what it says about Enoch, that Enoch did not experience death. So whatever it means, whatever that looks like, however he was taken up to be with God, Whatever it means, Enoch is someone who did not die. He's the one exception in this chapter. Now, you say that's kind of unusual. That is unusual, but it's not totally unique. It actually happens with another individual in your Old Testament. Does anybody happen to know who that individual is? Elijah. You guys are some Bible scholars. Good, good job, right. 2 Kings chapter 2 tells us the prophet Elijah also did not experience death because God, you remember God took him to heaven in, the, in the, a chariot in a whirlwind? You remember that story? So this is not a totally unique circumstance. God, from time to time, has elected to choose certain people to not experience death. I hope he would pick me. I mean, that sounds like a great thing to not have to go through death. Now, why is this in the text? Well, I don't think that Genesis is suggesting that everyone who walks with God won't have to go through death, right? Because you know plenty of people and I know plenty of people who walk with God and then they die just like everybody else. I, but I do think that Genesis 5 includes this little detail. It's an obscure little detail. Rather, to, to be a ray of hope for those who choose to, to walk with God in their life as opposed to living out sin, a sinful life, that death doesn't have to be the final answer, that there is an alternative way to live. There is an alternative to a sinful life leading to death, and that is to walk with God. Here's the deal. Listen to me, church. Walking with God is the antidote to death. Do you believe that? No? One person believes it. Walking with God is the antidote to death. You want to get, get another chance? Do you believe that? Okay, that's half of you now, all right. So let me argue the point here for a minute. Walking with God, like Enoch, who, who Hebrews 11 says walked by faith, right? So a walk with God is a walk of faith. It's a life of trusting God. Walking with God by faith, listen, robs the grave of its power because we're walking with the one who put death to death. You don't have to succumb to the inevitable consequence of the finality of death if you walk with God, because when you walk with God, you're walking with the one who put death to death, which means death doesn't have to be your ultimate consequence. Does that that mean that we won't actually die? Well, in a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. The, The truth is we will all face death, but for a believer in Christ, death has no permanence. For a believer in Christ, death, has an expiration date. You see, Enoch avoided death by a miraculous translation to heaven. God just took him and he was not. But folks, there's someone else who defeated death by a miraculous resurrection from the grave and his name is Jesus. Which means that even though each and every one of us will face death, Death won't have the final say. Death is not the end. For a believer, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 54 tells us that one day death will be swallowed up in victory. The Bible tells us, listen, not only that Jesus experienced death and was buried and came back to life, but that if you follow him, one day you will die. You'll be buried and put in the ground, but that's not the end. One day when Christ returns, you will follow Christ out of that grave. Like Jesus, you will be resurrected from the dead as well. Listen, I think sometimes we think about our future as believers and we just think about, you know, being in God's presence in heaven and sort of floating around in the clouds with angel bands and halos and so forth. That's really not how the Bible describes your future. It is true that to be absent from the body is to be what? present with the Lord. So when you die, immediately, the moment that you close your eyes in death, immediately you're gonna be in the presence of the Lord in heaven. But that's not the end of the story. You gotta keep reading. You gotta read to the final chapter of the last book of the Bible. One day, Christ is going to return and the Bible says that when Christ returns that the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible. and The the, the apostle John says that he saw a new heavens and a new earth and a city coming out of heaven down to earth. There's a picture there that God is going to one day remake the world, that you will actually live in a resurrected, glorified body in the new Jerusalem on a new earth. You're not going to live some sort of disembodied life floating around in the clouds. You're going to live a resurrected life in the presence of King Jesus on a new earth. which means that death does not have the final say. Death is a temporary problem that has an expiration date, that death itself will one day be defeated in full. If you were charismatic, so you'd be running up and down these aisles waving hankies right now. That's some good news, isn't it? Enoch shows us that, that death is not the final answer for the believer in Christ, that death is temporary. It has no permanence. Which which leads me to the very last observation I want to make about Genesis chapter five and it's at the very end. The last reminder, listen, the the chapter shows us the the purpose of a life lived for God. It shows us of the consequences of a life lived in rebellion to God. It, It shows us the importance of a life lived walking with God. But the last thing that the text shows us is the future hope that comes from God. I want you to see it Tucked away in verses 28 through 32, the last, uh, the last part of this genealogy describes a different Lamech. Remember, you we, we have a Lamech in Genesis 4, it's a descendant of Cain. But there's another Lamech, a descendant of Seth, through Seth's family. Verse 28, Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son, and he named him Noah. Now, Noah is going to become the main character in Genesis 6 through nine. Okay, we're going to see his story starting next week. But why was he named Noah? Well, Lamech said it says that Lamech named him Noah because he said that this one will bring us relief from the, or some of you have a translation that says he'll bring us comfort from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the the ground the Lord has cursed. And then it tells us in verse thirty-two that Noah had three sons: Shem, Ham and Japheth. And that's where the story ends at that particular point. Now, the text tells us an important detail. It tells us why Noah had the name Noah. Lamech named him Noah because he said that God is going to bring relief through this one from the curse The word Noah in Hebrew, it's a word play. It sounds like the Hebrew word that means comfort or bring us relief. So every time you would hear the word Noah, you would be reminded of this idea of relief or comfort. And Lamech says, I'm naming him this because I believe that it's gonna be through him that God is going to bring comfort from the curse, relief from this curse Of the ground. He's expressing confidence that one day relief from the curse of sin would come and that it would be through Noah. Someone has said that Lamech was, in a sense, looking both backwards and forwards. He was looking backwards at the curse, but he was looking forward for comfort. He was looking backwards at rebellion, being reminded of the curse of sin that they were enduring, but he was looking forward to a day where they would be relieved from the curse. And here's the deal. That's actually how it was going to happen. God was going to bring relief from the curse through Noah. Here's how he does it. First of all, he brings relief because it's going to be through Noah and Noah's family that God is gonna provide a way of escape from judgment through the ark, right? That's what Genesis 6 through 9 is all about. God is going to bring judgment on the earth, but Noah and his family will be a refuge. Anyone who goes to the ark, any animal that runs to the ark for refuge will be saved. And so in in a sense, he will bring relief from the curse through Noah. But there's an even more significant way that God is going to bring relief from the curse. It would be through one of Noah's descendants that God would bring ultimate relief or ultimate comfort from the curse. You see in verse 32, we are told that Noah is going to have three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And one of those sons, Shem, his line, they're going to be called Shemites or Semites, the Semitic people are going to come through the line of Shem. The, the Israelites, the Jewish people are going to come through the line of Shem. And one of Noah's and one of Shem's great, 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 great grandsons is named Jesus. And Jesus is going to die on the cross to take the consequence of our sin, death. He'd be raised back to life, defeating death, so that all who walk with him could ultimately be delivered from death once and for all and experience relief from the curse. Jesus would be like Noah and the ark, that anyone who would run to Jesus for refuge would escape the storm of God's judgment. Jesus is the one who would bring ultimate relief from the curse of sin. I, there's a wonderful little detail at the very end of your Bible, <laughs> in the book of Revelation. It's one of those tiny phrases that it's, it's very easy to pass over. In Revelation chapter 22, it's a description of the new heavens and the new earth, right? This new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven to earth. It describes it. It describes uh, a tree of life that's going to be there, like the garden, Right, So it's, it's like a, a, restore, a restored Eden. But right in the middle of the text, in Revelation 22 and verse 3, it says uh, the, the tree of life was on either side of this river, bearing 12 different kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. And listen to this, and there will no longer be any curse. Folks, that was foreshadowed all the way back in a genealogy in Genesis chapter five, that through Noah and his family, God would bring one who would eliminate the curse of sin, which means that even though Genesis five is fairly dark, full of death, full of reminders of the consequences of our sin, folks, Genesis five is full of gospel hope, gospel hope that would be fulfilled through Jesus Christ, the one who would take the consequence of sin on himself, so that you and I could be delivered from the curse of sin, amen? I'm thankful for that, all of that in the genealogy. Here's the thing, anytime I do a funeral as a pastor, and usually there's a casket right up here, I will will tell the people who are present to let this person's death make you think about your life. In other words, when you think about death, it should make you think about life, It should make you think about your life. And so I want you to, as we've read a lot about death in Genesis chapter 5, I want you to allow that reminder of death to make you really consider your life. Are you walking with God? Are you living like Enoch? Are you pursuing intimacy with God? Or are you living more like, say, Cain or Lamech, rebellious, living out the consequences of your sin? Allow Genesis 5 to be that reminder for you today To walk with God. Let it also give you hope that one came who defeated the power of death and relieves us from the curse of sin. Here's the good thing about a funeral. I always tell people who bury loved ones, I say, listen, if it's possible, rent the casket because you're not going to need it forever. Amen? (laughs) If Christ really rose from the dead, it means caskets are temporary. It means Cemeteries are temporary. You know where I want to be when Christ returns? I want to be at a cemetery. Can you imagine? Can you imagine gravestones bursting open as Christ returns and the dead in Christ are raised because of our champion, our victor, Jesus, who has defeated death and put death to death? That gives me great hope today, and I hope it does for you. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day that you find your hope in him. We're gonna sing one final song in just a moment and then once we're done singing that song, feel free to linger. There are gonna be several staff members who will be back over in that corner. If you'd like to talk about how to have a relationship with Christ or you maybe just say, Pastor, I want to walk with God more intimately. We can talk with you about that. We'll be around for a little while. Feel free to talk to me or any one of the staff members here and we'd love to, to help you to take that next step. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We're thankful That even in the obscure parts of your word, there is something that's edifying, there's something that is encouraging, there's something that's profitable for us. So Lord, I pray that as we've thought about Genesis 5, that you would just drive the truths that are present here deep into our hearts. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who live out our purpose, that we would image you and represent you well. Lord, I pray that we would walk with you, help us. Grow in us a desire for greater intimacy with you. Lord, forgive us where our desires are for other things. Forgive us where our hearts wander. And Lord, help us to have great hope, the future hope that we have because of Christ, that one day the curse itself will be gone. And help us to live in light of that hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.